and welcome to Climbing Consulting with me, your host, Nick Sinnott. Today's guest is Bronick Masiada, Chief Executive of Hiscox. Hiscox is a leading global insurance firm with over 2,700 people across 32 offices in 14 different countries. Now, you may be wondering, why am I talking to an insurance executive on a podcast focused on management consulting? Well, firstly, I'm a big believer that you should learn from those who've been successful regardless of industry area, and what Bronick has achieved is hugely impressive. Under his leadership, his Cox has grown from one office of 200 people to the global firm it is today. In addition to that, Bronick was also a management consultant prior to joining his Cox, spending four years with McKinsey before being offered the chance to join his Cox as managing director at just 31. Whether your goal is to climb to the top of your consulting firm or take the step out into industry, there's so much you can take away from Bronick's insights and advice. We cover a whole range of topics in this conversation, including the story of how Bronick became managing director at such a young age, how he's grown his cocks and the challenges he's faced along the way, how he achieves a good work-life balance as the CEO of a global publicly traded company, and Bronick's advice for consultants looking to win work from CEOs like himself. Bronick was kind enough to give me a huge amount of time out of his busy schedule to share his knowledge, learnings, and advice with you. And I know you're going to get so much from what he has to say. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Bronick Masiada. Hi, Bronick. Welcome to the show. Hi, Nick. So to kick us off, I wanted to start actually somewhere slightly differently to where I start with most of my guests. And, and that's actually at the end of your consulting career. I wanted to start with if you could share the story of how you went from being a consultant with McKinsey in Tokyo to finding yourself at 31 being managing director of Hiscox, the London market insurer. In order to answer that question, I actually have to go back not to 1993 when I joined Hiscox, but actually to 1991. In around May 1991, I came from Australia where I had been working for McKinsey And I came to London to work on a project that McKinsey in London had been hired to do on the Lloyd's insurance market itself. And the reason that I was asked to come across is by complete coincidence when I'd been at a university here in the UK. I had done a project um, applying, you know, Markowitz portfolio theory to participation in Lloyd's as an investment. Nobody had ever done that before. And through that when McKinsey were hired and they asked the Lloyd's planning department, as it was called, you know, how do we know whether this has been worthwhile? They said, well, the last time we knew, the world expert in that worked for McKinsey in Australia. So I was invited to come across, or I invited myself, in fact, when after I'd been contacted, I volunteered to come across to London to join the project for three to four months. My wife and I thought that would be nice and would then have a good summer holiday and then go back to Australia. But in my, probably in the first couple of days of being here in London, we had a meeting at Lloyd's where we talked about what was known as the old years. Now, the old years were the claims coming from asbestosis, pollution, which dated back to the, quite frankly, 20s, 30s, 40s, which were coming, were growing as a litigation culture grew up in America. So people who were exposed to asbestosis in the 50s as they were getting towards the end of their lives, um, cut short by, by diseases caused by asbestosis, were suing the people who bought insurance policies. And that was costing Lloyds about £400 million a year. And probably around a third, maybe 40% of a normal year's profit. 
And there was a meeting on the old years, which I attended together with my boss, Charles Roxborough from McKinsey. And at the end of that meeting, I don't remember exactly what was said. This person came up to me afterwards and said, um, we don't need supercilious outsiders like you coming here to tell us what to do. <laughs> and I went straight back at him and I said, if you don't talk about the future, you don't have one. And, you know, I thought that was a perfectly reasonable response <laughs> to that sort of attack. Charles went white. Well, just to help my listeners with context, I mean, if you're talking 91, you would have been 29, you would have been yeah, senior have manager been, grade. I, wasn't, I was at that stage. No, I had been... From a career point of view, I was then, you know, senior associate because I did, I don't have an MBA, mm. so I was in my just after my third year at McKinsey. So I was, you know, getting to the end of being an associate, and this was a project. But I came to London as an associate. So yes, I was an experienced associate, not an EM even, doing that. And so we got in the car back to you know from Lloyd's in the city here. EC3 across, you know, chugging through Trafalgar Square to the McKinsey offices in St. James's. And it was a pretty quiet journey. <laughs> anyway, being the unempathetic um, South African that I am, even I had realized then that maybe I'd said something wrong. Um, anyway, so Charles jumped out and I went home. And the next morning, in the morning, I'd always got together with Charles, who was the sort of the senior engagement manager on the project. And but nothing happened. I was in sort of summons to his office and was dead quiet. And at that time at McKinsey, um, all these sort of temporary overseas people were in the basement sort of office overlooking the car park. And they, obviously the permanent people had nicer offices higher up in the building. Anyway, at around, I guess, 10, 30, 11, the phone finally went rent and this voice said, um, hello, this is Robert Hiscox. We met last night. Uh, do you want to come around for lunch today to talk about the future of Lloyd's? And I reckon that's why two years later, having then spent sort of a year working for Lloyd's, then another year working for another financial institutions, and then three months working for Lloyd's again, at the end of that second tranche, Robert offered me the job. And I said, well, I consider it, but I've committed to go and work in Japan for the same financial services client we had had in London for their Japanese business. So I'll let you know. But I'm sure, and I know Robert obviously incredibly well, is that he responded as I responded to, somebody who was prepared to stand up to him and had a point of view. And as I look back on it, that interaction was the beginning of a turning point where previous to that, the relation between the Lloyd's market as a client and McKinsey had been pretty much master-servant. And slowly went to equal partners and dealing with the challenge. So that's, I think, why Robert, having known that, I'd stand up to him. And I, you know, when you're running a business, the most valuable people are not the people. There's two groups of people: people who are really good at execution, also people in the sort of strategy formation stage, who are good at strategy. But in both groups of people, what's really important are people who will say, "No, you got that wrong," and this is why, and he has a different way of doing it. And I think, you know, Robert realized that intuitively, and I'm sure that was a big motivator in doing that. And he did have the chance. We worked together actually very closely on, on both sets of projects. So we already had a working relationship, but it was founded as a partnership, not a sort of parent-child or, you know, master-subordinate type of relationship. I'm just wondering what that lunch must have been like in the, getting, I assume it. It was great because we went and we talked about the future of Lloyd's and what it might be and what the issues were and so on. 
And when I phoned up Charles to say, sorry, I can't see you, I'm going out to lunch. And he said, well, who was? I said, Robert Hiscox. You know, you could hear this shocked silence <laughs> on the other end of the phone. Anyway, Charles is now, you know, Charles Rocker is the um, second permanent secretary of the Treasury. So, you know, he um, had a long career at, at McKinsey, and when he left, he ended up at the Treasury. So, you know, in a funny way, he and I have had a 20-plus year relationship too. And I want to come on to the point, we'll, we'll come back to, to Lloyd's. And I think if time allows, it'd be great to get your take on the future of the, the Lloyd's market at the moment as well. But I want to come to the point you mentioned there, you you worked with Robert for a, the two years, he offers you this job and you go, I'll think about it. Mm-hmm. How did the next stage happen? What what questions did you ask yourself that ultimately led to you deciding that, yes, that is that was the right thing for you to do? I mean, the, a couple of things happened. I was in Japan. My family was still here. Robert pursued me, so he didn't say, oh, that's okay. Every month or so, you know, I'd get a message that Robert Hiscox had called and, you know, I'd call him back. Many times it was after having been at karaoke <laughs> in um, Japan, so I wasn't always sober. Anyway, we kept talking to each other, and clearly my wife and I kept talking to each other about it as well. And, you know, you sort of think, well, okay, I knew by that stage I was a regional consultant. And I had actually, in a sense, I was in Japan. My, my next career move would have been back to Australia, to Sydney, to become a sort of senior engagement manager, sort of the rank, the, the, the level just below partner. And so that was pretty clear. And so, you know, I tried, well, which would be more remunerative, which would be more interesting, which would be, for us, it was not just a career change. It was a country of extended abode change. And, you know, in a way, but the, the challenge with analytical people is that you essentially you can sometimes just overanalyze things. And I eventually nubbed it down to a pretty simple trade-off, which is would I sit at Bronte Beach, which is a lovely beach on Sydney close to where we then had an apartment, and wonder if I could run a company in London or would I sit in London and wish I was on Bronte Beach? And when you put it like that, it's a pretty no-brainer decision, I think, for virtually anyone. Because I knew I, you know, we spend a lot of time at work, and if it's a challenging role, then that would be fine. And you know, I always took the view: well, if it didn't work, I mean, I gave Citra, but look, I don't know whether I'd be any good at this. But I commit whether I like it or not. I'll stay for two years. Robert was very involved at the time in the restructuring of Lloyd's market as a whole and wasn't spending much time at Hiscox at all. And so I took the view that that's what Hiscox needed. We've all done studies as consultants which weren't that great, but you've stuck it out because that's part of what you paid for. And I thought, well, actually, if I'm no good after two years, I would have then, my career through life would have been determined. And therefore, the right question would be, I'd know that I was no good at doing the day-to-day grind of management, and that I should focus on being a good career consultant. And if it, didn't work, if it did work out, well, then I'd enjoy it and I'd carry on doing it. And so it wasn't, you know, I, did, I had the, in the fortune position in the sense of, at one level, life's about optionality. But an option, once it's in the money, you have to exercise it. And so I was lucky I exercised an option, that thanks to the job offer from Robert, and then I, in a way, mentally created my own option again in two years' time. And I very, very nearly persuaded McKinsey in Australia to give me a return ticket after two years. 
And there were three or four partners there. I think I persuaded four of them this was a good thing to do, but the fifth one said, no, we can't do that. And why, why was that? Why, after those two years, did you think about going back? I didn't think about going back. This was all negotiated oh, pre... Pro, apologies, this was pre, pre... This was pre-accepting the job. Ah, uh, got you. So I had, no, that's bef- I had accepted the job, but I, it was pre-starting the job. Uh, so I effectively sat in Tokyo, got an overnight flight back to Sydney, effectively to go and see the local management and resign. And so I thought I had to do that face-to-face. Mm. And I did that. And in the conversation, I said, well, I've given a commitment for two years. Would you have me back in two years' time if it doesn't work out? And um, four out of five said yes and one said no. But on that basis, I had already sort of I was jumped off the diving board. But I knew because of that reaction that I was a well-regarded consultant. And quite frankly, I th- always thought two years of working in business, even if it didn't work out, would make me a better consultant rather than being a career consultant. And that point around actually taking time out of consulting, this is obviously the listeners to this podcast are broader, but primarily consultants. And I think there some people see that and see the values. I think some are nervous of jumping out for fear of not making a promotion point, not making partner in whatever the right paradigm is for, for their firm. You must have had colleagues since then, friends since then, ask you, who are in similar positions. Do you find yourself just giving that, do you give that advice to to all? Is there, is it right for some and not for others? How do you, how do you counsel people in that position? I don't think there's ever a fa- hard and fast answer for career planning. It depends on a, a combination of personal risk appetite, personal focus. I think the fundamental difference between being a consultant and being a um, working in a business that I certainly found pretty early on is I worked much longer hours when I was a consultant, even than I do as a CEO, but I slept a lot better as a consultant. And the difference really comes down to accountability for decisions, is that when you're a consulta- consultant, you work really hard to get the facts, gather the opinions, come up with a set of proposals. But those are proposals to management. When you management, you have to gather the facts as best you can, but you have to decide and live with the consequences. And it's the question of, well, what are the consequences and what happens if they go wrong? What happens if they go right? And that still occasionally I wake up in the middle of the night with my you know, brain spinning about, well, what's the right thing to do? And I think that's, that is a big difference between the two. Mm. The other question is, is relative consulting. Business is boring because when you're a consultant, you sort of every three, six months, you have a new project in a new industry. There's this huge learning curve that you have to go through in order to get up to speed to add value and so on. And every three to six months, you feel like you're John Wayne or you, the, the sheriff coming in town to the Lone Ranger coming to help a business, a select few who are going to save the many. But in a business, ideas don't get built in a day. So actually, once you've got an idea, when you have a business idea, when you see a change, actually implementing it and really implementing it can take years. You know, the key strategic insight was gained once, but actually, how do you keep on working that? I mean, for me, going in a new country, starting up in a new territory, that's a multi-year thing. It's not a three years and you're done. We've been in Europe, mainland Europe, and France, we've been there 25 years. We opened our first office there in 1994. 
well, almost 25 years now. And it's still, and we open it from scratch. And the key insight that there's the opportunity to take specialist products and sell them in the local market, not make people come to London. That was the key insight we were pursuing in 1994-5. That insight's still correct today. But what it means changes all the time. And building the skills and building local capabilities and building the brand and the reputation that people trust you, it takes a long time. So, you know, the business in, in Europe is this year it'll be 300 million euros. And as I keep on saying to the CEOs of France and Germany, I said, you know, goal number one is the whole of mainland Europe, it's six countries we're in, is as big as the UK. And goal number two is France is as big as the UK. And so that's, you know, that's, that key insight, though, is, is not new. So where's the intellectual challenge? It's not in the key insight. The challenge is actually figuring out what that means in the next week, month, year, multiple years for the French business. And so it's a different set of problems, but it's not a whole new industry or a whole new geography. And if you look at it from a shareholder perspective, it's that ongoing capitalization on an idea and then slowly expanding the breadth of that idea is what creates value for shareholders. And that's the case. I mean, the, the story in many startup worlds, and now you're trying to do one, is you know, I work night and day for 10 years and become an overnight success. Yeah. Most businesses take longer to get to where they are than people really, really realize. And I do want to come on to the growth story because Hiscox has grown phenomenally from when you joined to, to where you are now. I'd be really interested in the points you've highlighted and actually how you found it as you moved over. So you touched on that, that ownership point. You touched on the boredom point. because I, I think that is a... Having sat on, it's not boring. Let no, me, sorry, let not, me be very sorry. Boredom, sorry, bad it's, choice it's, of words. Bored is my bad choice of words, but it's one. It's not. I mean, I somebody asked me to how I feel. I've been doing at Hiscox for twenty five years this year. I'm still one of those people who looks forward to going to work on a Monday morning. Mm. I don't find it boring, despite the fact that it is boring to have been in the insurance industry for twenty five years, the world's most boring industry. In reality, it's not that. But if you want variety and you want to be in a different industry and you want to do that all the time, being in a business isn't for you mm. because it doesn't lend that opportunity. If building things and creating things is what's in it, was what gets you up in the morning, then being in a specific business and doing that is for you. And that's why I do sometimes think there are different people are best off pursuing different careers. Mm. How did you... So maybe putting to side, as you say, it's interesting in a different way. How did you find you had to adapt, though, when you when you joined Hiscox? So you know, to your point around, you probably worked harder at McKinsey, who you know, have, for anyone who knows the industry, know they have a reputation for working very long hours. How, Sorry, is there a consulting firm which doesn't? Well, I think there's... there's uh, there's, there's extreme shade, there's and extreme, gray, yeah. Okay. And I think they're, in terms of hours, the sort of the strategy houses and the big four strategy houses are probably at the, the yeah. further end. But how did you? So you know, just as one example, take that versus coming into the London market, where again, just to generalise, has a reputation for more regular, sort of nine to five hours, and it still exists now. But I imagine twenty five years ago, a lot more relationship management and networking, which invariably led to a lot more lunches, drinks, dinners. Th say that's just one. I, I think, I mean, I, let me be clear. I joined Hiscox in 93. Hiscox had already had four 
probably two decades, a no drinking at lunchtime policy. It still okay. has that today. Mm. We've always believed that at Hiscox, if you have the right products and services, the relationship can add to that, mm. but it can't compensate for the absence of the right products and services. But the challenge of, say, you are the new bright young thing, you arrive in a business, and remember that I don't know how to underwrite, mm -hmm. I don't know how to pay a claim, I don't know how to read an insurance policy wording, I've never run an IT department, and I've never been responsible for operations, and the executive chairman, the guy with his name above the door, says, and guess what, this is the new group managing director. You know, I'm sure it went down like a lead balloon. Not with everyone, though, but particularly the people the same age as me, who were probably that, who were three rungs down in the company. And all of a sudden, you know, I was the people who reported to me, I was 31. You know, Robert was 50. Nick Thompson, who was the chief underwriter at the time, was 52, probably around the same level. The people running the trading business units were in their 40s. And then the line underwriters were in their 30s. And so, I did think about it before I came in quite carefully. So the first thing I wanted to communicate was to be clear that I had some domain expertise about not the narrow part of insurance, but the broad part of insurance. So I quite deliberately put, went and found and put on my desk the various reports on Lloyd's over time. So the Roland Task Force, which was the task force that I had worked on, I had that. I had the first Lloyd's business plan in 1993. I had that. And I had a couple of other reports. So people knew that I knew something of the macro environment in which they are living. And then the second thing is I was lucky in that I found a, a real need in the business, which nobody in the business was capable of addressing. And not only were they not capable, they knew they were not capable. Because in, prior to 1993, Lloyd's had relied on its capital, on rich individuals who had pledged their assets at Lloyd's. And effectively, because of all the asbestosis pollution, because of hurricanes, and because of a big oil rig that blew up, those people were withdrawing their capital. Indeed, many of them sadly went bankrupt as a result of that. And so the market as a whole, and Hiscox like, was affected by that, didn't have capital to support their underwriting going forward. So we need to go and raise capital from third-party investors. Well, I didn't know anything. I hadn't done that either. But I did know how to, and it's something that I, we think talk about today, I do know how to solve a problem when I don't know how to solve a problem. And that's something I think consulting does give you a lot of practice at that. And so I had that opportunity. And so I, we met, Robert knew people, investment banks and so on. And we set about raising capital. And I joined in August. In September, really. And by the end of November, so September, three months, we had created two pools of external capital to support our business. And nobody at Hiscox could have done that. So it very rapidly created a role. That, okay, so this is what the new MD can do. He can solve. He's not going to do day-to-day -day underwriting. And Nick Thompson, who was Robert's partner, was brilliant. He basically arrived on day one and said, okay, well, I report to you now. So how are we going to work together and what do you want me to do? I said, well, I want you to do what you do and I want you to teach me about underwriting management and I want you to help 
worked with you to identify areas where we can grow the business. And on the capital front, you know, I worked with the CFO, who was in his late 50s, who had been involved in a public company, and he was effectively helped. He and I worked together with Robert to raise the external capital. So by the end of the year, there was clearly some you know, run on the, on the board, which said we had the money and that nobody else could have done it. And once you've got momentum, you know, gone from zero to one mile an hour, then it's a matter of practical application of problem solving, which keeps you going forward. And you've got to be prepared to learn and be humble about learning how to do that. Was there, and we don't have to speak about individuals, but were there any relationships which were more challenging for you coming through the door you mentioned? Yeah, I mean, I think the... um, the one we got wrong once, and I never made that mistake, was thinking, the great thing about consulting is that you have a peer group. You have a lot of people who you work hard with, who you socialize with over the weekend, who you create a horizontal network with in, within the organization. And I didn't realize when I joined Hiscox that actually being the group MD just cut that all off. So I made the mistake of thinking, oh, well, I could go out with a, for a casual beer with people in the same age as me. And I couldn't because they were some one or two of them were resentful of the fact that I'd got the job and they hadn't had mm. a look in, and others were just you know nervous of the title. So you know, my wife and I went to dinner with a group once and just never again. On the way home, he said, "We're not doing that ever again, are we?" He said, "No." So that I got wrong. And then I guess the other challenging relationship initially was with um, the um, person who ran the biggest trading unit. He was 10 years older than me. And um, it was like, okay, we're trying to work out hard to do that. And eventually, to his credit, he, he and I had a coffee. And he said, he, we chatted about things. And eventually I said, look, Rob, I don't know anything about underwriting. The odds are you could do my job. I couldn't do your job. But if you did my job, you'd need somebody else to do your job because the world's too short to do both. And all I can do is if you know how to underwrite, I know how to make us rich. But if you don't underwrite well, all we can do is restructure and sell his stocks. And that person's Rob Childs. It's actually, he's now chairman. He's now my boss. But that created a partnership which lasted as, as been as important as the one with Robert Hiscox or with Nick Thompson. Because hmm. Rob became chief underwriter when Nick retired. And when Robert retired, he became chairman. So that's where you have to do. You have to where you have a difficult relationship or not quite sure, you've got to work out how to work together. And I've always been very clear is that the external perception of Hiscox for many years was that Robert dominated everything. The reality is Robert dominated our external image. He is clearly a gifted, strategic, intuitively strategic person. But internally, there were a whole bunch of sharks who were going around marauding the opposition, actually quite happy not being the big external figure. And so Hiscox had always been, and Nick Thompson is not at all well known outside of Hiscox. But, you know, for 20 years before I arrived, that was the key partnership that drove Hiscox forward. And so to this day, the basic insight that Robert and Nick had worked out between the two of them of you need a chief executive and you need a chief underwriter and they had distinctive roles. And yes, ultimately the CEO carries the can. But actually, there are distinct zones of activity and focus. Is actually an insight, and the third person you add to that is the CFO. And that triumvirate, we always look in our business units today, 
is that triumvirate there and is it working effectively? And, you know, that was the way at Hiscox then. And that's the, that's, we still use that basic triumvirate to run the group, to run, you know, our UK business or our European business or, or elsewhere. Where, where you try and, we are not a hero CEO business. And quite frankly, because we don't want to work 24 7, that's what's required. I want to come on to something, and I didn't mention it earlier, but it, it's worth just for my listeners' context where actually I first heard you speak. So, mutual friend of ours, Alex Gurr from Beringa, invited you along to speak at the Christmas, I think it was Christmas 2014. It was a, a number of years ago. And it follows on quite nicely from what, what you've just talked about because. I remember there, there were two things that, that really stuck with me. And the, the first was the story you, you told at the start around, in essence, consulting is always there to go back to. The industry isn't going to go anywhere overnight and neither is your skill set. So you will, you will still be able to go back if, if it all goes wrong and something that I've applied in my life. But the, the second part was around how you've had to grow and how to learn. So where, we're sitting here today and the latest reading on your new website, which congratulations yeah. on the new website. Um, Nothing to do with me. <laughs> I, I got the emails telling me it was coming probably only a few hours before it went live. <laughs> well, nice website all the same. Thank you. Um, you're now 2,700 people. Sure. You joined the firm at 200 people. Yep. And on that day when you were giving that talk, that one of the points that really stuck with me is you said that you as a leader had to grow in proportion to what the firm grew. So sure. the firm grows 10%, you have to grow 10% as a leader. I'd be really interested to actually explore how you've done that. Because you say you've been here 25 years, the firm's grown, what's that, 13, 14-fold in that time. But that's a, a huge amount of personal growth for you as well. How have you done that? And what have you done to ensure that you have kept your finger on the pulse in the sense of knowing when you need to learn or when you need to grow as a leader to accommodate the business? Oh, that's, hmm, I don't even know where to start on that. I guess I've learned over time that, yeah, there's two dimensions or three dimensions of it. One is absolute number of employees. Number two is all clearly revenue. And number three is clearly geographies. And then there's, within that, there's learning how to grow. That's almost, it's adapting and recalibrating your skills. And so the, um, so how do you do that? I guess it goes back to the um, what I said earlier on, which is a few things, a couple of cliches, which I've stolen from other people. So I never, there's a great book which says, you know, what got you here won't get you there. Mm. And that's a, um, I don't know whether it, in your experience you've come across in the T-shaped career in terms of, and it's particularly true for consultants, in fact, or any professional person, which is, and often smart people, is that they believe depth is everything, that you, you become an ever better operations consultant or strategy consultant or actuary or accountant or lawyer, and you have this really deep domain knowledge of a very specific area. But actually, the reality is, is and it's, I came across the T-shaped consultant at McKinsey, so that's 25 years plus ago, was that then the advice to a young consultant was develop T-shaped knowledge, which is deep knowledge of one area, so be a specialist in something, but have breadth across the top in the T, the top of the T across multiple areas. So, you know, if you do strategy, develop your horizontal in different industries and in different functional capabilities. If you do operations, you've got to learn a bit about strategy. 
and that, that drive, and again, consulting is, you know, the upper right process, which certainly McKinsey applied, and I think many other consulting firms do too, drove you to learn how to learn. Mm. And I came here with those sort of couple of, you know, toolkits and have applied it ever since. And the, the upside of the consulting environment is that the project changes, particularly in the early part of your career, force you to learn. And I guess at the senior level, which I never reached, the economic imperative of trying to sell consulting projects makes you learn how to learn what's on your clients' minds. So you do that sort of thing. And in my job, I like learning. And the question is, is how do you get, put yourself in the flow of information, knowledge, and so on? And, and quite frankly, that's, it is difficult not how many of your listeners actually read a newspaper going forward? And I know it's all been gone into websites and your news flow and so on. And I don't just mean the news of the day. I also mean opinion. So reading what other smart people are thinking and you know, slowly absorbing it, not agreeing with it, but actually learning with that. I've, you know, for better or worse, read The Economist for probably 40 years now. And that, like it or not, gives you... Yeah, I'm as interested in the business and finance and economics pages as I am in the geopolitical ones. You know, I've read Fortune magazine probably for 40 years as well. And then occasionally dip into other magazines and books and so on. And it's that cumulative putting, your, putting yourself in the flow of information. And do you do that? And I would say there are many, many people who, both consulting and a business, who don't put themselves in the flow of new information. And don't say, okay, so this, so this new thing called the internet, you know, comes along. I mean, I remember when I got introduced to the internet, probably in around 1998, our then sort of guy running our UK business, he came and he said, I've set up the screen and he switched it on. And we said, well, what is that to you? He said, well, that's connecting through a web something to a mainframe that's sitting somewhere else. And we said, and what's the great thing about that? He said, well, you can send people messages through that you can trade with them and the observation was immediately well well that's what we spend a lot of time sending fax machines backwards and forwards with brokers could we replace it with that mm. and then for somebody like me having to learn okay what is this thing called the internet what's a dial-up you know stuff which nowadays people what's i mean i remember i had an isdn line at home you know which was specifically installed to be able to do let me do remote working at, you know, probably £1,200 per annum, specifically installed. BT came along and did it, and that was a very slow, you know, ISDN line. And so the, the requirement in business to learn what new stuff is out there is ever, ever present. And so I think to be able to stay top of your game or even stay in the game, forget top of your game, you have to be prepared to do that. But the fundamental things don't change good products with good service to great clients at a fair price. That's the number one thing for many, many businesses. And you're always saying, well, how do I use this technology? How do I use this? If we're entering a new country, what do we bring that's specifically different? How do you provide great service? Those questions never go away. The tools you use to deliver them mm. do. But you always got to bring it back to saying, okay, so why is this good for the customer? Why is this going to be of value or service to them. And if you can answer that question, then on the whole, people will pay a fair price. Sometimes, you know, you have a not much margin. Other times you have a great margin. 
But that process of learning is important. And then from an organizational perspective, you realize that you need to structurally reset the way the team works. And we've just sort of figured it out along the way by being sensitive to when things don't work. And so, you know, funnily enough, a good place to think about at what numbers businesses go wrong is the army. Because armies have existed since time immemorial. And they've had to organize large groups of men, mainly, to achieve specific objectives over an extended period of time. And in my experience, every regional office we've ever started, every office we've ever started has had a managerial leadership crisis, somewhere between 14 and 17 people, and then a grain at about 50, and then a gain at about 100, and then about 200, and then around 500, and then around 1,000, and then around 2,000. And if you go back to the building blocks of an army, mm-hmm. you have a squad of 10 people, because even a bad leader can lead 10 people. Okay, you then get three squads which make a company, and that's led by a, a corporal and sometimes an officer as well. Then you put you know three companies together and you then create whatever it is next. And the army has realized there are these building blocks. And actually, people complain about hierarchical things, but it's also pragmatic in terms of how do you get groups of people to work together? Mm-hmm. It's very hard, even in a in what appears to be a highly structured environment, not to get away from those rough metrics. You know, if you go in a service center, you have teams around eight to 10 people seems to work pretty well. You can have a team leader who's then got enough time to provide coaching to people on the telephone. You know, you have then somebody who's a floor manager who's then managing, you know, 40, 50 people with, you know, four or five team leaders working for them. When you have an effective a great person can do more and a below average can do less. And as you observe these things going wrong, quite frankly, you know, I've developed over time a few metrics in my head, which I look at our own business units. And all I say, so how many people are you nowadays? How many locations are you? And then, you know, I had a conversation with somebody running one of our UK branches, wasn't performing very well. And I said, yes, well, how many people are there now? It's a 50-person branch. That's a pretty big branch. Is it set up to be a 50-person branch? Are they still trying to run it like it's a 15-person branch? So those are the things that you, you do. And yes, the challenge for the middle managers particularly is, well, the, the core underlying junior roles don't change. But sometimes people say to you, but the thing is, Bronick, we'd never run a 31-year-old to run, appoint a 31-year-old to run Hiscox like Robert appointed you. I said, yes, but your division, in fact, I had breakfast with the junior people in our property division in, in Lloyd's. And I asked them, I said, okay, so how big is your division? Well, your division is bigger than the entire Hiscox business was when I joined. And how old's the person running you? And so that's where the measurement is not the role, but actually the scale of what you're putting people in. And so those are all, as you learn about organizational dynamics and change and, and, and you know growth, you've got to find the time and energy to to do that. It's perfectly acceptable. There are other people I know who are really good at turnarounds. There are other people who you meet who are really doing, you know, the 50 to 250 phase, and then they go back and they do it again. So there's all sorts of different, you know, career paths and and specialities you can can Mm. develop. I want to come back to how you judge that element, because I think that point exactly around, if you look at a lot of what happens in Silicon Valley, they, they talk a lot about the difference between a CEO who can come in for the 0 to 50 person firm versus the 
let's scale it, let's then take it to IPO. And I really want to get your take on how you assess that side of things. Interested on the point you mentioned there, though, around the you, you had these crises, say, at these, these inflection points. Actually, how you honed those senses to be able to be even aware of those? What I wouldn't say the- they're crises. Okay. That's the important thing is not to make them crises. You just mm. need to – how do we go through this? Yes, there are many crises, but nothing catastrophic in terms of it. And you just realize it's not working as well. And part of being a, running a business is having a sense of does it feel – not that it's perfect. There's always something going wrong. It's, you know, The ship is always creaking. But you're thinking, actually, it doesn't feel as effective as where we are now. And yes, that's how do you tell that? I don't know how you tell it, but I just get a sense of, you know, that's the case. I mean, I remember chatting to the guy running America. He said, God, it's not working as well as he wants. Things are taking much harder to get done. And so I said to him, how many people have you got now, Ben? He said, oh, about 400. I said, well, it's dead on schedule. You know to rethink the way you manage your, the U.S. business. I said, how do you know? I said, I just, I've seen this movie before. And you have been growing, you know, 20, 30% per annum. Why do you think that the structure you had when you were 200 is right for when you're 400? Why? Why should it be the same? Because you've got more offices, you've got more products, you know, you've got more operational stress. And the other challenge, the biggest challenge is actually when people, and what actually then drives it is when people are sitting on top of a function, which just grows because the business is growing. And again, you have people, you know, the CEO of Hiscox US on a 100-person firm has got to do a different job to the CEO of a 400-person firm. The job title is the same, but what the job entails is different. And so it's some, you know, I like, you know, all your Silicon Valley startup phases, you know, because we've grown steadily rather than explosively. At a personal level, I've had the opportunity to learn how to do that. And my colleagues have as well. But the, the challenges in running a business is always there is a tension between <clears throat> loyalty to the people who help you, that helped get the business to where it is today versus the quite harder question, which is, are they the right people to take us where we're going? And how do you manage that transition? Because some are and some aren't. And how do you do that in a way that's consistent with your values and treating people fairly mm. is really important. How much of it, is the people versus the structures. It's something you've just triggered from what you've been highlighting there. Is it usually a people problem? So the COO isn't up to the 400-person firm. Is it usually a, a structural issue that the the operating model of the business isn't set up for 400? Is it somewhere in between? What, what have you, where do you tend to look first? There's sort of strategy structure people. There's sort of, it's like the three corners of a triangle. You can go into these problems from any one of those those aspects. And it's seldom just one of them. You know, good people, great people will figure out the strategy needs to evolve and then adapt the structures in order to deliver the strategy. Some people so yes, great people will drive the change of strategy. So it always comes down ultimately to people. And some people are really good at seeing that. Other people are good at seeing it after you've nudged them and encourage them to take the risk. <coughs> Other people just find that, no, I don't want to do that. And quite often people who don't want to do it are, are tied by the, their loyalty, which is a good thing to the people who help get them there. And it is really, really hard to turn around to somebody and say, I'm afraid you've done a fantastic job, but actually it's not good enough anymore mm. because the bar goes up. And that's, you know, that's part of the 
personal challenge of running a business. How do you assess that when you're bringing people in? You know, do you, or, or is it even an assessment factor? You, do you think this chap or this girl, they'll get us to, they can do 400, but if they get no, to 600? I, I think when you're hiring somebody, you, you want somebody who can just go the distance. And the distances, oh, we're not that's, you know, that's way too analytical in terms of the way you do that sort of thing. You say this is the role that we quite often for. We, there are roles in terms of to bring in talent with a long way in the, in the business. We have often, the, the, the conversation is often, are you hiring the person so they can do this job? Or do you think they've got the talent and capability to do the following three jobs? Either this job twice the size, or could they do their boss's job or their boss's boss's job? And I think that's where there's always a challenge because like it or not, of course, people, you can say, you should always hire people smarter than you. Most people don't because deep down they have a fear. So you've got to think, okay, how organizationally do we make sure that we're hiring good people and in certain core roles, we're hiring people who could do their boss's boss's job. And you've got to create then an HR structure which allows that to happen. And that isn't... That's easy to say and, and hard to do. And some managers live up to that better than others. And, you know, that's part of that's part of the challenge of businesses, building the talent pipeline to do that. Most consulting firms and consulting industry have this sort of upright process. I mean, when I left McKinsey after five years, I phoned up one of my colleagues to say, you know, I'm leaving. And he said, well, you're the third last, Bronick. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, you know, we all joined in a six-month period and in um, Sydney, and you may not remember, but there were 21 or two of us who went on a training, a sort of local introductory program for those who joined in that six-month period. And of those 22, you know, 19 have left, and you now the 20th, and there's only two of us left. So that's in five years, and that's sort of more or less in line with my sort of when people ask me in consulting, is that certainly in the McKinsey model, about half the people leave after every two years in that sort of associates, you know, engagement manager, senior engagement manager time frame. And, you know, I started as a junior associate, so that's one year, then five years, and, you know, I was bang on the number. And you do the maths, on 22 people, you'd expect two or three to make it to five or six years. And so that's the way consulting businesses drive their talent pipeline, is by an extreme sorting mechanism. Mm. Right, you can't run a business with that as extremist sorting mechanism, but you do need a sorting mechanism that not everyone's got the talent to keep on rising up a pyramid, and especially when the pyramid is growing around you. And that's probably the most important thing is making sure you've got the people the right talent who prepare to drive the business forward, even if that sometimes means adapting the strategy or the structure in order to do that. We talked a lot about the how your skills have grown while running his Cox and the transition. Be interested, what for you has been the most challenging part of that journey? In a consulting environment, everyone's driven and working hard and you know there's a very clear career path and everyone, you, in a successful consulting firm, people, what good looks like is, is apparent. For me, getting the right, learning to lead people who all don't want to hire that is, is a, um, was a, a, a change. Mm. change of pace, change of leadership style, a change of how do you motivate people. Most people want to be built part of building something great, but not everyone's prepared to work 80 hours a week to do that. So the question is, how do you 
connect with people's desire to be part of something bigger than themselves that's making a difference to their customers, but do it in a way that they can have a reasonable life as well. So that was the other challenge. And then the other, the second part of it has been figuring out how to bring talent into the business and developing that part of the talent management process as well. So, you know, coming back where we asked before, this is a strategy structure of people. All three are important, but the people drive the other two. And so having the right people, you know, you may say, well, how does Hiscox grow? It's like, well, I don't know, because I'm not doing it. You know, there's a whole bunch of people in America as we speak here in London, you know, deal with brokers, pay claims, develop new products, provide great service, and they're driving the growth of the business. I'm doing nothing. We're sitting chatting here in London. And so that's why I think you take those three. It's not just about the people. You know, if you get the strategy wrong, as Warren Buffett said, you know, if you know, the reputation, of the, if it's a bad industry and you're betting on the reputation of the industry, the reputation of the management, and a great management team in a poor industry will do okay, provided they're great. But not everyone's great all the time. But if you have a great industry and a mediocre or great management team, you can do awesomely. So the strategic choices do actually matter, even in insurance, because from people outside insurance, that's all commodity, they're all the same. So finding the right parts of it matter. But again, good people will work that out and focus the energy there, rather than trying to do a me too on you know, somebody else because for whatever other reason. And then you know, delivery, operational delivery, structural stuff matters. But getting the right people processes, because I hadn't really thought about that. I mean, it just worked. Coming into a business which had grown and, and professionalizing that part was a big challenge um, for the business. And I guess then the other part of it is really a challenge. Comes back to saying to people, parting company with people who haven't grown as fast as Hiscox has grown. And that's, again, a, um, at a personal level, is often difficult. On that point around bringing talent in, and obviously you came from, you probably wouldn't say outside the industry, but I'm sure- I did come from, I'm still outside the industry. Yeah, and and this is, so I've I've worked in and around the Lloyds market and the insurance industry, again, huge generalization, but like people who are in the industry and have worked in the industry. But to your point there, how how much emphasis do you and the team here, or, or do you sort of counsel others to place on industry knowledge versus- skill set and aptitude it depends on the role mm. and the th- the reason in the london market there's a real thing about industry knowledge is because people underwriters have become extremely knowledgeable about extremely narrow fields and that that and there aren't any books that, that you can go and learn that because you know there are people here who can no doubt tell you why specific reactors are more likely to blow up than other things I can't. And you can't learn that at university because it's such a specific knowledge. And so there's that favor. But apart from a few specialist areas, my own view is that with a good analytical framework, an underwriting framework, you can work that out over time. And for non-frontline underwriting roles, we've just hired a CFO who came from the Prudential, never worked in a general insurance or reinsurance company in his life. We've had the guy who we hired not 12 years ago. But when we hired Steve Langan to come and become MD of Hiscox UK, we hired him from Diageo. He didn't come in as head of marketing. He came as his MD of the business. Ben Walter, who's currently the CEO of a US business, we hired him out of 
BlackRock, but before that he was with Barclays Global Investors. He had never worked in the insurance industry beforehand. Mm. We have great success at Hiscox of bringing people in from outside of the industry and then mixing them with people who've grown up in the industry to create a different sort of focus on the world. So I think Lloyd's is probably the most institutionally clannish in terms of that. But it's not impossible. So how do you want to now, I want us to take a, a bit of a step out of, of the work side and something you you mentioned sort of towards the start around the hours. You know, we, we talked about consultants and frankly, consultants at all levels work longer hours and, you know, to, to your point, work longer hours than you as, as a CEO. And I think a lot of people have a preconception that as a CEO, you're working 100-hour weeks. I'm sure there's some, but you're working every hour that there is. And I wanted to touch on actually how you strike that balance because you've got a, a large family. Sure. You're you're an avid, avid catering racer. You're still, still Not racing. Avid, useless catering racer <laughs> would be better. Slow I, catering racer. I take avid in the keen sense. So you're a keen you, – you, you, um, I think I, I read somewhere an interview with you that says as long as you came in the third quartile, you were happy. So. No, I'd say at the top of the fourth you know, so I say to people, <laughs> no, That's drifting, has it? My, my goal is to come first, second, or third last. <laughs> and so when I come third last, I feel like I've won. You've got so the, that's fine, but yeah. you know that's the I don't have the hours to put put the hours in. Mm. My question though is, is how you find how you find the time to to balance this, I mean, it, and it might be that that's a non question for you. But actually, is there anything that you have put in place in in your life to enable you to strike that balance? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think I mean I've I've blown myself up as a consultant. The rule number one I learned when I was still at McKinsey was that take off 24 hours a week, come what may. No matter how bad the project crunch is, take 24 hours Saturday or Sunday and do no work whatsoever. And I mean none. Don't listen to the email. Don't go mooch around, wake up late, and so on. You know, in a way, if you go back to Genesis, on the seventh day, you should rest. Mm. And that I learned early on and I learned it by being in a project where I was working 24-7 for a six-month period and slowly and surely I was becoming more and more exhausted. My brain was was well beyond its insightful level and I just sort of thought I can't, can't carry on like that and I still do that today which is no matter how bad things are there's normally it's Saturday from Friday night until Sunday morning I don't look at my emails and we don't have a culture here of, you know, phoning each other on a Saturday or Sunday to talk about the business. And I do that to, still today. So I think that's really important. Bizarrely, the other thing that helped me when I, 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 I came here was having a strict, you've got to be on this train because mm. it made me go home. And that's certainly I found fine. And so I generally, if, if I'm, tonight's an exception, but normally I'm on the you know, I, I leave at 6.45 and I get home at 7.30. Mm. And so I'm lucky in, 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 in that regard. And so you need that discipline. And then the other thing I do, which I take a three-week holiday normally in the summer, and if I can, another two weeks over Christmas. And again, I'm not available then. And my secretary has instructions to say, well, you know, if it's don't, if it's important, don't send me an email. Send me a text or give me a call. But mm. I'm not reading my emails whilst you're away. And you can say, yeah, well, that's easy. You're the CEO. You can determine what happens. But certainly on those things, not working on a 
for a day a week and having holidays and respecting holidays. Most people can say that to their bosses. Look, I'm on holiday and I'm not going to be looking at my email. This is what I've done in, in, in place. And quite frankly, there are very few things, certainly in the insurance industry, which are a must-act in a 24-hour period. Mm. And so that's that. And then during the week, you just have to, yes, you can, again, because I don't do day-to-day deals, people in the whole don't, I don't have to go out and um, schmooze customers. And that's the case. So how do you get it right? Well, you plan and, you know, you have pretty packed out days when you, you're on, but you do try and work that all through. And it's funny, I think, what you say around people might say, oh, you're the CEO, so frankly, you can tell them not to not to call you. Sort of looking upwards to that role, I, I sometimes see almost the opposite, that people are almost, I have to defer to the CEO or you know, whatever level of management to make that decision. And suddenly you do get those situations where people are taking emails on holiday and in effect, they they continue, they have to be the decision maker. Did you have to put anything in place to, to or maybe this is a cultural point for Hiscox, is it just the culture that people understand they can make decisions without you in, in every decision-making group? Is it something that you had to build in culturally? But part, I mean, there's two things. You've got to remember that at Hiscox, if you're a frontline underwriter, you're taking risk decisions every single day of the week. Mm. And there's too many of them for you to refer to your boss about what about this or that. And so that's decision-making. Uh, that's when people join us as graduates. They love it because pretty rapidly they're in a decision-making, risk-taking role. And they have friends who are you know, still doing their articles or what not. Mm. So to that extent, decision-making on individual risk decisions are correct. And then the other thing is, yes, that's part of the evolution of, yes, where there strategic decisions being made today, well, absolutely. And do you have to be involved in many of them? No, that's why you have a sort of planning quarterly review process to create as part of the change, I forget when, maybe when we were about 1,000 people, I said, okay, we're going to have a quarterly reviews now because we can't do this as informally. And the deal in those reviews is going to be, we will, based on the decision, you can come along with decisions you want to discuss. And based on the information there, we'll either say yes or no, or I want to know the answer to these two or three points, and then we'll make a decision. On the basis that in most of our business, and most, and probably quite frankly, most businesses, there's no decision, there are very few decisions which cannot be undone. As businesses react better when you say to people, just decide and move on and get a six out of a seven out of 10 hit rate, then looking for perfection in every single decision. And that's very much the case is try it and see, you know, and if it's wrong, just change your mind back again. Don't, don't always, um, way to think more study will give you a better answer that's that is you know everyone in consulting has heard about analysis paralysis eventually you just have to decide and that's the point um and and, and that's really where I, the other thing is to try there's one of the um good to great type books where they said you know you do a, a um a sniper shot to sniper shot and then you fire a cannon <laughs> Don't look for the home runs. Mm. You know, try and hit a single, hit a single, and then hit a six. But don't go and try for a six on the first ball. Mm. And sportsmen understand that. Get your eye in. Too often in business, people are looking for the, um, what is the silver bullet, the one thing that will change everything. Reality, 
In fact, I heard a speech last week of somebody from Mercedes, and the question from the audience was, well, what is, in an era of driverless cars, what does a premium product look like? If they all driverless, how do you tell? And his answer, I thought, was a very good one. He said, the reality is, is that the perception for product is like a mosaic. There's no one thing which is going to make Mercedes premium in that environment. It'll be a whole series of little things, which when you look at it individually, will shine or sparkle. And then when you take a s- step back, there'll be a distinctive view, which that's what quality will look like in that environment. It could be the, partly the design of the interior. It could be partly the design of the car. It could be partly the speed, the safety, the whole ambiance. Well, actually, that's a really good thing about what does good look like in business. It's a mosaic of things you build together. Mm. And you can change the mosaics piece by piece as you need to as, as time goes by. So I really thought that was a good thing. Presumably in that, there's a, an inherent point around senior management allowing it. So I, what I mean by that is anyone in consulting has heard a client blame middle management. Sure. Um, it's always middle management's fault, and they're always the the blocker. Now, there's a couple of books that I've read recently that made me think about this. One was a book called Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink, he's an ex-Navy SEAL. But he makes the point that ultimately everything comes back to you. So if the manager below you isn't doing what you want them to, it's not because within limits they're a bad manager, but it's because you're not giving them the tools, et cetera, to allow them more. Yeah. How have you fostered that culture? How have you fostered that it's okay to hit a six, sorry, not hit a six, get a six out of 10 or get a seven out of 10, as opposed to the culture you see in other places, which is if you're not nailing a 10 and you're not hitting the six, you're not hitting it out of the park, you're, you know, you're gone. I mean, I think, I well, I don't think you sort of, we didn't set out explicitly to design it like that. It's just the way it, it works. I tell you a great story, which is, it, it does to some extent come from, from the style with which at, at the top, which is the way one of the things I learned from Robert is it's only money and nothing serious. And that's actually, it helps. Mm. You know, in underwriting, you expect to have losses. You expect to write a risk, which you expect to be a good risk. And guess what? For good or bad reasons, it has a loss. So it's not unusual for things to go wrong. It also comes down to from a not penalizing people for the one thing that goes wrong. And it's people watch not what you say, they watch what you do and mm-hmm. how you do it. Come back to the thing about the website. Yes, we've got a new website. Yes, I was aware that we've been working on it. Did people rush in to say, well, Bronick, what do you think about this design or that design or the next design? No, they didn't because mm-hmm. they felt, yes, there's somebody who owns the brand look and feel. And then there's other the communications team and the other the content of it. And there's no doubt a technological team that owned it all. I don't even know who's a project lead on that. Mm. And they've done it and it's come out and that's great. And I'll wander around and see the head of comms and say, okay, who do I have to go and congratulate? And so that's all happened. It's not a sort of everything's got to be approved and signed off. And sometimes you get it wrong, yep, but that's life. And um, better to do it and do it a bit quicker than the competition. Mm. Then hang around and wait to be perfect. And to that point, what do what piece of advice do you find? And it might be on that element, it might be broader. What piece of advice do you find yourself giving to junior colleagues? And that may be your I don't use junior in the sort of pejorative, but in people who are lower in the firm than yourself, maybe your management team, maybe the graduates. I mean, maybe that's uh, something for our younger listeners. What were you? What piece of advice did you give to those graduates over breakfast today? 
I mean, I'd say that, that, that this, don't check your brain at the front door. Mm-hmm. That's number one. We hire smart people because they're smart, and we want them to bring their knowledge and experience and judgment to work with them. And the second thing is, you know, the world belongs to the people who take the initiative, who put mm-hmm. their head above the parapet, try new and different things. If you do, if you're above average, you know, half of life is showing up and another 25% is taking the initiative. That puts you ahead of 75% of the people. That's not a bad place to be. So I want to come on to, so these are quick fire questions I ask all guests, all about one of the questions which I'm, I'm bringing in because it gets a great response from guests and listeners alike. Um, and I'll start there, actually. So I really, I listen to a lot of podcasts and they ask about morning routines. And a number of my guests have said that they both like listening to others and finding out what people do. And so I wanted to ask you, do you have a, we've talked about your annual routine of holidays. Do you have a morning routine? Is there, do your mornings all look the same? How do you, how do you approach your sort of weekday morning? <laughs> they all look the same and they don't, the, um, I have a weekly routine more than a sort of single day one. I always try and sit down on a s- Sunday and write down on a piece of paper what I want to achieve in the week ahead both in t- looking at it in terms of, you know, divide my piece of paper into four, and our top left is, you know, what's important and who do I need to interact to get it done. In the bottom left-hand quadrant, you know, what's urgent that I've got to get done. In the top right-hand quadrant, what I've got to do personally to keep my personal life on track. And then the bottom right-hand corner is, you know, if I've got one-on-ones, what are, I want to raise. And I found that if I do that, as what I don't always do it as re- well, as I've just explained to you. But if I do that well, I normally have a more productive week because it, it makes you forced to look forward into what you want to achieve over a short period of time, but it's normally part of a monthly plan or an annual plan as to what you're trying to do. In terms of the morning, I get up, I get dressed, I get on the train. And I, you know, in the in the on the train I sort of do emails and then I look at the news around mm. the world. And so I don't actually try and start. I'm not one of these people who sits on the train in the morning listening to a podcast. Or I'm still semi-comatose. Fortunately, I then have to walk across London Bridge, and that's what wakes me up in the morning. <laughs> and then I get to work, and I'm ready to get cracking. Mm. And if I have that plan from the Sunday, then that creates a structure in terms of okay, so what am I doing to mm. to achieve that? And that then and leads to the successful week, as you were talking yeah. about. Brilliant. And so the next question is something I've deliberately held off asking throughout this because you know you talked a lot about magazines that you sure. read and staying up to date is books. So I like to read sort of business books and uh, self-improvement books. A lot of my guests and listeners do. What books do you find yourself giving or recommending to colleagues here most often? I don't. <laughs> I ask them what they're reading. I don't, I'm not a prothelizer saying you must read this book or you must read mm. that book because I don't know what they're that interested in. And I don't believe that there's a book which is going to change the world. I think it's a, I ask the reverse question, which is what are you reading? What are you doing to expand your knowledge? Everyone reads in different ways, mm. learns in different ways. And so I don't, I'm not a, you must do this, but I want to know, have a, if it's, well, I read or send my Twitter feed or my you know, mm. Facebook feed, then I say that's not good enough because it's not varied enough. So maybe then, and you can answer both if they overlap, but what books have helped you 
and what books that your colleagues have recommended have had the most impact on you? Well, I like the whole Jim Collins series. I find all of those, mm. the good, you know, Good to Great, How the Marty Fail, you know, and some people don't, the ones he's done on, I find those all fantastic books going forward. I haven't, funnily enough, you go back a long way, I found the Tom Peters book, you know, all those years ago, what, 25 years ago, was again useful, even though my academic friends think it's a load of tosh. So, but I find it useful. And then I have to admit, I, and when I get to books, I tend to read autobiographical ones about business people who've been in business. Mm. I prefer, it's fair to say, the ones which are trying to destroy the reputation of somebody in business rather than a sort of, <laughs> rather than autobiographies because that's, to me, what I'm trying to learn is, is how did people make the first million the first mm. period of time? Because, and I'm always suspicious of business books where they say, and then we did this, and then we did that, and then we did the other. Whereas for me, I'm also thinking, so what are the dead ends you went down? How mm. did you realize that? How did you adapt to that? And you tend to get that more from critical biographies rather than autobiographies. Well, what would have been your favorite? Well, I like the sort of various ones on Steve Jobs, which I thought were the most recent ones that I've found interesting because it showed mm. out that, you know, he's an unbelievably messianic driven individual, but he was also an unbelievable messia- messianic individual and they had mm. good and bad things to that mm. i liked the movie on him i thought that was pretty good as well and again that brought him across both as the visionary he was but also the how how, how tough he was as well mm. it's very easy for people to try and believe they are you know all lovely and so brilliant well thank you for the recommendations and last question and this is something i ask all of my guests so i'm you're probably the f- one of the first guests out- who is now outside of consulting, if you sure. like. So I feel free to take this as both what you would advise while you had been in McKinsey, but equally, and I think maybe it could be more insightful for some of our listeners, is what would you advise to people now you're on the other side of the, the table as a, as a consulting buyer, consuming of consulting? And it's really about advice. And there's been a lot of great advice across today's interview. Thank you for that. The question is, you have three people in front of you. You have one who's just starting their career. Let's take, it's crude, but let's take ages, you know, just left university, 21, 22. You have someone four to five years in, and then you have someone who is approaching that partner level. So sort of senior approaching that step up to to taking a partnership or whatever corollary you'd have in, in whichever firm. What one piece of advice would you give to each person? Well, I give sort of broad advice that they can interpret. When I was a junior consultant, my first job in consulting was not at McKinsey, but in South Africa whilst I was waiting for my visa to go to Australia with a firm called Pim Goldby, which is now part of Deloitte's. And a consultant on the then, a sort of grizzled consultant, said, there's only three reasons people hire consultants. And you've got to understand it at the beginning of your career. And I said, so what are those? So he said, well, they either hire it for extra hands, i.e. there's a crunch and we need somebody to help us rapidly. For specific knowledge, we have specific domain expertise about something and that's why they hire us. Or the third reason is to tell us, to tell them what they already know, but they want to come from an outsider. And I'd say wherever you are in your consulting career, you need to be answering those three questions for you at that stage of your career. So in the beginning, when you're just getting started, it's like, okay, how do I 
you smart so you're available as an extra hands and how do I just be available and have a positive attitude? How do I start building my domain expertise? And the third thing in terms of how do I build, build and maintain and have the courage to be objective? Mm. Then when you're in the middle of, you know, three, four-year consultants, you have to redefine that as well. And probably when you're a senior consultant, the most important one is working out how to be the outsider telling people the tough message, which they know, but in order to move the group dynamics forward or the business forward, it's better if it comes from the outside, even if you run the risk, the risk of borrowing your watch to tell you the time. But, mm. you know, those, and actually when I look back at most of the work that I was involved as a consultant or to the ex extent that we use them at Hiscox, they all fall into those three buckets. You know, extra hands because we have a crunch and we need some smart people rapidly for a specific task. Specific knowledge or to tell us what I know to be true, but in order to stimulate executive debate, the beginning of the conversation is better it's being initiated by a third party and then what do you respond to that idea versus what do you think of my idea as CEO mm. or their idea if they've been the initiator. So that would be my advice. And he, he gave me one other piece of advice, which is also worth calling in mind. It's just trying to get hold of a CEO of a prospective client. So he phoned up and spoke to his secretary and he said, well, sorry, you know, X, Y, Z's on the telephone. He'll be another sort of 10 or 15 minutes. And he said, that's okay, I'll hold. And literally, we held for 20 minutes whilst the secretary, every five minutes, are you sure you're happy to hold? No, no, I'm happy to hold. And eventually, the CEO, you know, whether it was an excuse or real, it didn't matter. Mm. He had no choice but to take the call. And I said to him, so why did you do that? He said, what do you have to remember when you're selling to CEOs? They're busy people. Mm. At least when I... He's on the phone. I know he's in the office. I know he can find time to take my call. If I say I'll call back tomorrow, he could be on an away day. He could be in a plane overseas. He mm -hmm. could be doing something else. Getting to speak to these people is the big challenge. And so that was the other thing that he gave me. And I think, and I use both of those things today, which is when do if I need to speak to somebody, how do I get hold of them? When's mm -hmm. the best time? How do I make friends with their secretary? And when it comes back from a consulting services thing, those three reasons are when somebody says, we need a consultant, Bronick, I, in my own head, say, so why are we mm. hiring these people? I think you might have just got yourself a number more calls from consultants <laughs> no. who are willing to hold. Um, <laughs> and the one, it was something that I certainly took as, as advice right back at the start and obviously had such a an important impact on on what ultimately became your career and and his is when should people start or how do people start cultivating that ability to i mean i've heard it called talk truth to power but how do how, when and how do people develop that ability and when should they exercise that ability to to tell clients you're wrong when i was a junior consultant i hated it when clients disagreed with us because i thought to me well, it's so obvious. We've done the analysis and the answer is 42 or whatever, and mm. you should be doing that. Then actually, after I had experience, I realized that it's way better when you get involved in a disagreement or a dialogue with, with, with customers or with clients, because that means they've engaged. 
Mm. And if they've engaged their brains, they will be thinking about it. And by working together, you come up with a better answer. And so to me, you've got to, you either have the self-confidence or the belief in your analysis or your work, quality of work to be engaged and talk to, to clients. Because the con side of that is the worst clients are the ones who say, yeah, thank you very much. And you haven't engaged them intellectually. They haven't bothered solving the problem. And those are the reports that end up on the shelf, on the shelf never followed through. And as a consultant, you may get paid well for reports that end up on, on the shelf, but there's no satisfaction in that. You mm -hmm. won't think people to do something. And having that, it comes, I think, based on the grounding and in the, in how confident you are in the work that you've done. And if you've done that well and you've got a good foundation, you should then, even if you're slightly nervous of them and they are more powerful and older than you, you should then have, based on the facts that I've seen, this is what we would recommend you should do. And I think the foundation of good consulting work should give you the ability to talk truth to power. But if you're a nervous disposition, you'll never get there mm. and you'll never be a great consultant. Brilliant. Well, I think that's a great place for us to finish. Thank you so much for your time. If people want to find out more about you, and I mean, I think your, your poor secretary is now going to have hundreds of people holding. I'm just going to have to have a quick board. Um, but where would, where would In you order to get to that bit of the story, they have to have listened all the way to the end. So not everyone will. No, but those who, who do have been rewarded. Maybe there's another lesson. Uh, if people want to find out more about yourself, about his cocks, um, where would you, I, I won't say get in touch because they can do that now by your secretary, but where would you point them to? Where should, where should they go? The website and LinkedIn. Brilliant. Okay, Bronick, well, thank you so much and all the best for the rest of your week. Thank you very much, Nick. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Climb In Consulting podcast. If you did, I would be very grateful if you could leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast platform of choice, whichever one you may be using. And please also share this with anyone that you think could benefit from hearing today's interview. If you want to get in touch or give me any feedback about the podcast, please feel free to drop me an email. It's nick at climbinconsulting.com and I look forward to hearing from you.